Well, good morning again, everybody, and I want to just say a special word of welcome right now, not only to those of you who are here in this room, but also to those of you joining us by video. I'm really glad that you're there too and that we have this opportunity to be connected, to learn from the Bible together, to learn about life together in Christ and the hope and the joy and the power of Jesus Christ. We're in the middle of a series right now. It's a series that's called Ancient Roots. For the last several weeks and for a couple weeks yet to come, we are learning from an, an ancient summary of the Christian faith, a, a summary of ancient Christian teaching that's called the Apostles' Creed. It's a confession of faith, a statement of Christian belief and teaching that has been shared by all Christians everywhere around the world and throughout time. And today we're talking about one phrase, one, one pair of lines from the end of that creed where we say that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And, and just what that means and what that means for how we live. To, to get us thinking about that, I want to begin by asking you a question. Just, and this is the question. If you've ever been to a funeral, if you've ever been to a memorial service for somebody, I want you to reflect right now. You don't have to answer out loud or anything, but, but think, what, what were the feelings that you felt there? What were the thoughts that you were thinking there? What were you experiencing in, in that moment, in that kind of thinking about death and life and the meaning of all that stuff? I can remember the first funerals that, that I ever was a part of as a kid. I, I think there were some when I was a young child that I don't remember very well. The first ones that I remember, one was for my dad's brother, my Uncle Bob, who died of cancer as a young man. He was in his, in his 30s. And I remember the same time, almost a few months later, there was another funeral for someone in our kind of extended family system who also died of cancer. And we called her Aunt Hilda. And actually, I came from like a German Latvian family, so we called her Tante Hilda. And uh, I was not related to her, but do you have any aunts and uncles you're not related to? I had those in my large family system. But I remember having to think about death and about cancer and about suffering and that kind of stuff. Later, later in life, in my adult life, I've been to the funerals now of my grandparents and my father-in-law also. I'm blessed that both my parents are still alive. I have them in my life, and I'm really grateful for that. In those, in those funerals that I've attended alongside really quite a few as a, as a pastor to this church family. I find that the feelings and the thoughts that I experience that I think tend to fall into kind of two groups. On the one hand, there are the thoughts and the feelings I have where I want to learn about life from this person. You know, at funerals, we usually focus on the positives from somebody's life, right? And so I'm hearing stories about the sacrifices they made, about the good decisions they made, about the strength of character that they possessed. And I almost never finish a funeral that I attend or lead where I don't walk away thinking, I want to learn this, whatever that is, from this person. They, they got that, and I want, to, I want to apply that in my life, right? So I want to learn from those who've gone ahead of me. And I, I give thanks to God for the great examples of so many saints who've gone on before us from this church family and the way that their example enriches our lives who are still here. And then I also had this other set of thoughts or feelings or experiences, and, and that is around the question of an answer. You know, like, is, is there an answer to this? Is, is there something after this? Because there's plenty of loss, right? There's broken relationship, and there's grief, and there's sadness over somebody who's not with us anymore, and we can't call them on the phone anymore. We, we can't see them during the day anymore. Is there an answer for that? Or is it all just some big cosmic accident? Did we all just come from some cosmic soup to which we are now returning? And there's really no meaning to it all. It's much ado about nothing. And is that, is that all there is? Or is there, is there hope? Is, is there a word of hope in the face of our grief? And Christians believe what we have, a faith that we have shared for thousands and thousands of years. 
and it's captured in our ancient roots. It's captured in this Apostles' Creed that we are learning from. And so I want to put up here, this is the third section of the Apostles' Creed we've been learning from, and I want to invite you to say this with me. And I know every week, all the time, we have people here who are guests who are just checking this stuff out, and you're not sure what you believe yet, that's cool. If, you, if that's where you are, you don't have, I'm not making you say something you don't believe. But if you're a Christian, then I want to invite you to say this with me, and those last lines that are underlined are the ones we're going to be learning about today. So, so let's say this together. We believe in the Holy Spirit the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. We believe in the resurrection, that there is a resurrection from the dead. We believe there is such a thing as life everlasting. We, this is a statement of our faith. We believe what Jesus said very famously in the Gospel of John chapter 3, alongside about 100 other places where he says something similar. But this one famous verse is actually not only a poster at a football game, it also comes from the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We believe in eternal life. We believe there is something after the grave. There is life after death. We believe it because Jesus said so, but we believe it not only because he said so, but because he did so. Because <laughs> if he had only said so and not done so, why would you believe him? But on Easter morning, the tomb was empty. On Easter morning, the people who thought that Jesus was a fantastic teacher and a wonderful leader, but that he was dead, went to the tomb with ointments and spices and fragrances to anoint the dead body and to mourn the loss and to mourn the death. And they went there, and the stone had been rolled away, and the tomb was empty, and Jesus was alive. Christian faith believes that there is life after the grave. But so far, this faith is not yet what makes Christianity Christian. This articulation of hope that there is something after death is not yet the Christian hope for life after death. This is not what makes our hope Christian. In fact, most people in the world, whether they are Christian or not, believe that there is something after death. Now, we may have different beliefs about what that is or how it happens, or we may not actually think we know much about it at all, but most people the world over already believe that. In fact, most people in Jesus' life the Pharisees that he disagreed with about so many things who were so critical of the way that Jesus led his life and gathered tax collectors and sinners and the outcasts and the strangers and loved them, they believed already that there was life after death. Jesus did not have to die and be raised from the dead to prove to the world that there is life after death. In fact, the Christian hope about life everlasting, about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is bigger than that. It's, it's, it's a different and better hope even than that. And so I, I want to explain to you a few things this morning, but with the help of a couple of volunteers. If Shane and, Dad can come, Shane and Dan can come up here with me right now. You guys did such a great job at the first service. Thank you for coming back again right here. What I want to share with you by illustration of these two beautiful ski ropes <laughs> uh, are three different ways of thinking about the small matters of life, death, and eternity. <laughs> and these, these ropes here will help me explain to you three different ways that people, at least in the Western world, have thought about these questions of life, death, and time, and eternity. The, the first way of thinking about this is what I will call the philosopher's view or the philosophical view, okay? In this view, there is this world down here, this, this black rope down here. This is the world that we all live in. This is the world into which we are born and we lead our lives and we form our relationships, we have our careers, and eventually we die. 
And maybe that was a long time ago, somewhere way back there in time. Or maybe it's right about now. Or maybe it'll be somewhere out in the future there'll be people. And all along this rope, people are born, they live their lives, and they die. And when they die, their souls escape their bodies and come up here into this world. This is the world of material things. This is the world where people get sick and suffer. This is the world of hatred and violence and suffering and sickness and death. The world of bodies and material stuff. And this is the world where none of that stuff exists. This is the world that's not material. And this world is actually more real than this world. The philosophers who taught this had a slogan for teaching this. Their slogan was Soma Sema. This will not be on the final exam later, I promise. Their slogan meant the body is a prison. And one day our souls shall, shall escape the imprisonment of our bodies and go to a better place. Now, what I've been saying to you right now probably doesn't sound that revolutionary. You're like, yeah, I kind of heard that before, right? I think many people, like most Americans believe some version of this. I think many Christians believe some version of this. But the truth of the matter is, this is not actually the biblical view. This is, this is what people, what the philosophers were teaching already hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. And while this view does offer us a semblance of hope, there is a certain hopefulness about this view, Right? If you are somebody whose body is not what you wish it were for any number of reasons, if you are sick, if you are in pain, if you are terminally ill, if you are the victim of injustice, if stuff in your life stinks, then you would love to believe. You would like to have the hope that this world is not really the real world, even though you're in it right now, but you're going to get to escape this someday and go somewhere else where none of that stuff exists anymore. There's a certain attraction of this but it's also actually very dangerous. It's kind of discouraging the longer you think about it. One of the things that is discouraging about this is there is no connection between these worlds. They don't touch each other, right? And so all the stuff that you're dealing with right now, there is no power from anywhere else to help you do anything with it. So if you are one of those human beings that has some sort of superhero reservoir of strength in your inner being that you can pony up and cowboy up and make yourself a better person than you ever used to be and you can conquer all your problems, good for you. For the rest of us, it's not so good. For the rest of us, we're just hanging around and waiting until we die. And it's a dangerous view. It's a dangerous view because there is no connection between these worlds. Because there is no reason in this world to do anything good for your neighbor. There's no reason to invest in the structures and the good of this world because it's all going to burn anyway. It's all just going to go away. And I'm not saying that people who believe like this never do anything good in the world. That's simply not true. I'm just saying there's actually not much of a reason to. There's no relationship between our life and our hope. There's no relationship between our life and our hope. In fact, this worldview has gotten dangerous sometimes when Christians have gotten confused about it and begun to believe it. In the history of this country, this is the worldview, or this is the view of death and time and eternity that caused slave owners in American history to keep their slaves quiet by telling them, yeah, I know your life is hard right now. You live outside in the shack. You work in the fields all day. You're working yourself to death for my benefit. You're out there eating scraps, and I'm in the big house eating sumptuous foods and having pie for dinner, and you've got no pie, but don't worry, because someday there will be pie in the sky. 
And that's what goes on forever. And that's what really matters. It doesn't really matter so much if you're starving to death physically as long as you're well-fed spiritually. That's a dangerous way to believe. That's a pie-in-the-sky view of the world. Christianity is not a pie-in-the-sky religion. It's not supposed to work this way, but sometimes we've gotten confused about it. This is the view of the world that the atheist, communist philosopher Karl Marx was looking at, was thinking about when he said, religion is the opiate of the masses. Religion is what the upper classes use to make people in the lower classes be quiet and be settled with their life because someday their life will get better out here. He wasn't talking about what Christians actually believe from the Bible, just what we've been confused into believing. So let me move on from this one and talk about, uh, talk about a different view of the world. We're going to do a little rope magic and pull this rope over here. Ooh, right? Look at that. We're fancy around here. There we go. We're going to bring it right here and stop there. Okay. Now, this is a second view. This is what I want to call the Old Testament view. Or I thought about calling it the Pharisees' view or something like that because I wanted, or maybe even broader than that. This is the view that was shared by most people in Jesus' world, in, in Israel. The Jewish people who lived at Jesus' time, they saw the world this way. There was still, this black rope is still here. This is the world that we live in. This is where people are born, live their lives, and die. This is where sickness happens. This is where injustice happens. This is where everything that happens in our lives is happening right here. And there's a lot of stuff about this world that's pretty broken, right? And then there's a breaking point right here. And there's a world over here where everything is made right again. And they called this, wait for it, this is really revolutionary. They called it this world, huh? And they called this, the world to come, right? That's going to be hard to remember, right? This world and the world to come. And they had a slogan about this. There's, they're, they're teaching, there's, a, there's some rabbinical teaching from around the time of Jesus that gave, that gave this teaching. This world is like a lobby to the world to come. So prepare yourself in the lobby to enter the banquet hall, right? So there's a little bit of a relationship here. You're in this world and you're getting ready for this world to come. This is a world that's all full of the kinds of things I already described, a, a world that we could call a sinful world. And a, sin is sort of a, comp, it's not a complicated word, it's only three letters, but it's a big religious word, right? And you could just think of it as the sin as the force and the choices that are in rebellion against God and his good purposes for the world. This is a broken world over here. But in the world to come, this is a world worth hoping for, right? This is a world where all the stuff that was wrong over there is made right. People who die over here die, but they have a hope of being raised again from the dead to new life here. And not without their bodies, not without the world. The vision of this view is not that God is going to destroy the world and wreck everything that we live in. He's going to restore the world and make it right. And the Old Testament prophets looked forward to this world. And they said, this world is going to come. This is going to be a place where everybody does what's right. And they're not going to just do what's right because they're obeying a law, because there's some system or code of laws that they obey. But God said, I'm going to put my spirit within people. I'll write my law on their hearts. I'll give them soft living hearts so that their lives will be the way I want them to be from the inside out. It's a very hopeful thing, right? The very presence of God, the spirit of God will be given to us. Now, there are some, there's a hopefulness about this, too, like there was in, in the first one. There's things about this world that stink that are going to be a whole lot better in this world. So there's a hopefulness about this, right? But there's also still some problems. There is still no real relationship from here into here that changes anything. You, you might prepare yourself in this world to enter this world, but you're still kind of stuck without any power, without any work of God that changes anything. You're still kind of in a hang on until you die kind of reality. Now, let me change this one more time. We're going to take this red rope here 
and overlap it into the black rope, all right? And I've got some very fancy high-tech electrician's tape that I'm gonna use to put right around here. See if I can make it hold. There we go, I think that'll work. All right, now, I got one more piece. We're gonna bring this. I did not make that long enough. All right, here we go. It's taped now, too late. All right. If my very expert volunteers over there on the side could give me a little slack from Shane's side to center that up. There we go, let's call that good, thank you. All right, now, what's happened here is that the new world has been brought forward right into the midst of the old world. The people who saw that Jesus was raised from the dead had been hoping for the resurrection of the dead all along. And now Jesus was already raised from, dead, from the dead in the middle of time rather than the end of time. And they had to start asking themselves, what on earth is going on here? How, what does it mean? And then 50 days later, while they were still meeting Jesus and learning from him, and then he was ascended into the dimension called heaven, and then God poured out his spirit on the whole community of them gathered together, just like they'd always been expecting from the words of the prophets to happen, it happened now while they were still here. And they went, oh my goodness, I think we're living in the time to come without, the, without this world actually ending yet. We're living like in the overlap of the ages, right? And there's, there's a, just like there was some slogans for the first couple, there was Soma Sema and the, and the lobby and the banquet hall. There are some very familiar passages from the Christian New Testament that describe this, though we may not always realize what they're talking about. One is from the letter of 2 Corinthians, a letter that Paul the ancient St. Paul, the teacher Paul, wrote to the church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth, and this is what he wrote to them. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. You're being moved on to the red rope. This was also the first thing Jesus said. According to the Gospels, his like, headline message, the summary that they put first before filling out all the details was this from the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near, so repent. Another religious word that means turn around, revise your whole life direction. Repent and believe this good news that God has acted. He has brought this place where the Messiah, the King, God's anointed one, reigns and makes the world happen the way it should be. That has come. Here it has come near. So now turn your life around because you're not living for the black rope anymore. You're not hanging on until you die anymore. You're not stuck in this anymore. You are being translated into a new reality. All right, now I want to say a few more things about that, but I think they've been holding the ropes long enough. Do you think? That was really good. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Can we give them a hand? Thanks, guys. I owe you guys some Advil for your shoulders, I think, or something, right? Now, I want to talk to you about this for a second, this rope. What, what does it mean? What, what's the Christian understanding of what it means to live in this place where both ropes are present at the same time, where, where the red rope of God's new world has come and entered and overlapped the black rope of this present broken world? Now, I'll give you three short phrases to remember this by. The first one is this, new power, new power, this is what those first Christians experienced on the day of Pentecost and for many days to come when God poured out his own empowering presence, his Holy Spirit, into their lives. And he began to move their lives from living on the black rope to living in the red rope even while the black rope was still clinging around their ankles. Let me tell you a story about a friend of mine that I was just having coffee with just about a week ago. And he was sharing with me his story 
of a very long-term battle with addiction, alcoholism in his case. I've been fighting it pretty unsuccessfully for a long time, making various attempts, being cooperative with, uh, with several different treatment regimens and going to AA and having a month or two of success at a time and then falling back off the wagon. And after years of this, came to a place where he just finally said, I, I can't do it. I do not have superhero strength inside of me that is more powerful than this addiction. I, my fighting is a failure. God, help me. And, and surrendered to the empowering presence of God's spirit in his life and said, that was the moment of liberation for me. That was the moment of healing for me. Now, for those of you who are familiar with or are part of the recovery community, you know the word healed is actually kind of a tricky word because it can also induce complacency. So this is a wise brother in Christ. He goes to his meetings. He's careful. He understands the temptation and the disease, but also recognizes that God has yet done a new work in his life. And here he is living where, yeah, I'm a little nervous about the word healed. Sin still clings around my ankles, but this is not my identity, this black rope. My identity is on the red rope, and I'm experiencing the arrival of new life, right? And I want to ask you right now to think about your own life and whether there's something in your life that you are just waiting for God to help you overcome. Or maybe you haven't even been waiting for God to help you overcome it. You're just trying to overcome it on your own. I would bet that most of us have something like that in our lives where there is a, there is a broken relationship, there is anger, there is bitterness, there is unforgiveness, there is habits of sin that rebel against God's good work in our lives. And I, I want to invite you as part of your worship this morning, as part of the prayer time that we'll share in a minute, to surrender that to God and say, I'm not bigger than the cosmic power of sin in the world. I on my own am not bigger than that which enslaves me, but Jesus has been raised from the dead and the spirit of God has been unleashed in the world and there is a new power that sets us free. And this, this new power sets us free and sometimes, because we still live in the overlap of the ages, we're not out here yet, right? There is still black rope that's clinging around our ankles. And sometimes we are still just kind of in the midst of the mess for a period of time. And that period of time could be the years, the, the span of our lives. And if that's the case, what new power can also mean for us is the power of endurance. The power of making it through a season, a long season of suffering and affliction that you actually didn't have the strength to endure on your own. Let me give you an example of this. Last week was Confirmation Sunday here. We called it Commitment Sunday. Our 10th graders, after a period of preparation, were involved in a worship service in our church where they were ready to say publicly in their church family, yes, the good news, the gospel of Jesus is for me. I receive it, and I want to live my life for that, and I'm committing my life to that. And so we had about 25 or 30 seventh graders who came up to the front and we prayed for them. Each of us pastors laid hands on their heads and we prayed for them. And we prayed this prayer, same prayer we've been praying for the, for the group of 10th graders every single year. We prayed, Father in heaven, for Jesus' sake, stir up your Holy Spirit in, we named this person. We said we prayed you would confirm their faith, guide their life, empower them in their serving, give them patience in suffering, we prayed for them. Stir up your Holy Spirit to give them patience in suffering. It is so hard for me every single year to pray for the suffering of our 10th graders, you know? Like with an eye toward their present lives and an eye toward their future lives. And patience even, it kind of sits on me when I pray for that. 
And patience even is a thin word, honestly. Like in my mind, I'm also praying for endurance. I think that's a stronger word. There's an, there's an old, in, in some of the older Bible translations, the word that is now translated as patience is sometimes translated as long suffering. <laughs> Give them the gift of long suffering because sometimes suffering is long and we're praying for endurance in the midst of it. And it would not surprise me at all to find out that a very large number of us, a fraction, a very large fraction of us who are here this morning are in the midst of a season of affliction that just seems like it's going on. And when you think, I did not sign up for this, I did not ask for this, I cannot handle this, I know what you're talking about. And I want to tell you that the kingdom of God has come near and that the very empowering presence of God is poured out to us and is available to you to give you a strength that is not your own, a strength that is greater than yours. There's new power available in the world. There's uh, a second phrase. The second phrase that I want to give you is new community. New community. One of the first, when you read the book of Acts in the New Testament of the Bible, which is the story of God's Holy Spirit being poured out in the community of Christians and the followers of Jesus, and then it's a story almost chapter by chapter from there of God expanding the community of his people. And like chapter by chapter is a story of the first followers of Jesus realizing Oh, God is for them too? And, and the gospel of Jesus keeps reaching new people. And it goes to like some Samaritans, and it goes to the Ethiopians, and it goes to the Syrians, and it goes to the Turks, and it goes to the Italians, and it just keeps spreading out to all these different people. And you just imagine the challenge, and the stories of the early church are a testimony to the power of God's Spirit to create new community. And it's hard enough to live a life of sacrificial and forgiving love in the way of Jesus with people who are already like you, right? But then to see the creation of a new community on the face of this earth, made up of people of all these different nationalities and races and ethnicities who had spent the decades of their lives up to that time being trained and habituated into a world of hating one another and being suspicious of one another, to now find out that they were family to now find out that they were being made into a new people, into one people who share the confession that Jesus is Lord and the kingdom of God has come near and all of us who are in Christ share the new creation together. Man, that's a beautiful and a powerful and a miraculous thing. And in our world, still pretty relevant. We, we, in our world, we are not over the race thing yet. In our world, we still struggle with suspicion and hatred and division that go along lines of race and color and ethnicity and nation and borders. We're in a place where the Christian church still has every opportunity to be a witness to another way, to be a witness to saying God is creating a community of people, a family who know his love and know his heart and hear his call together. We are a new community. In being a new community and living as we do in the overlap of the ages right here, where the red rope has been brought forward into this black rope reality, what we are is a foretaste of the feast to come. What we are called to be is a beachhead invasion of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of, of this world. We are people who are receiving the love of God and called by Jesus, created by Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of Jesus to be a place where the love of God takes shape in the actual lives and relationships of a community of people. Jesus said a long time ago, by this everyone will know that you are my people. By this everyone will know that you follow me, that you are being trained and apprenticed into life on the red rope. This is how they'll know that, that you love one another. By your love they will know. We are created to be a community of incredible, gracious, unconditional love that we would be a testimony, a physical embodied testimony to the love of God 
for all people. New power, new community. And finally, the last phrase that I'll give you here is present future. Present future. This is sort of the radical new idea underlying all of this, that God's future has been brought forward into the present that we don't have to wait to begin living this way. We, we still live with this black rope around our ankles. You still face temptation to sin. You face temptation to find life and joy and relationship and intimacy and power and comfort in all kinds of places where it is not to be found. I do too. This black rope is still down there going, ah, just why don't you stay right here? Just stay right on the ground, that's fine. But this is not who we are anymore. If anyone is in Christ, there is the new creation. The kingdom of God has come near. You don't have to live for that anymore. We get to begin living for this identity. This is around our ankles. This is who we are. This is the faith that we confess. This is the, this is the faith that is the good news that is brought forward to us when Jesus, who is not dead but alive, says to us the same thing that he said to those fishermen by the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that he said to the outcasts and the sinners, to the, to the rejects and everybody else that nobody else loved, that he said to them, I have good news for you. The kingdom of God has come near. You, you can turn around. You don't have to live there anymore. Come and receive life from me. He said it to them, and because he is alive, we can believe that he was right, and that he continues to invite us into that life now. And when we confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed, we are saying yes to that invitation. We are receiving that gift and committing ourselves to live in it. When we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. I want to finish by leading you in a little, little prayer exercise here. So if this is really totally cheesy, you don't have to do it. But I want to invite you to do something with me here, okay? Uh, I'm going to lead us in just a minute's worth of prayer. And I invite you to begin by closing your hands, close your fists, and put them like palms down. And I want you to think even now about some black rope reality that is still holding you down, that is still a part of the life that is less than what Jesus calls you to. And as I pray, I'm going to give you a moment to open your hands and release that, right? Some bitterness, some anger, some unforgiveness, some temptation, a sense of hopelessness, you, whatever it is for you, I'll give you a moment to release that. And then to turn your palms up and receive, receive the new life that God gives you. And sometimes I think it's good to leave your palms open so you don't get grabby, but I'm going to have you close them anyway, all right, to, to grasp on to that new reality that God wants to give all of us. So let's, just, let's pray together. You can put your hands, your, put your fists face down. Lord, there are things about life in the old world to which we are still clinging, to which we are still holding because we think that that's where life is found, because we're comfortable with it, because we're used to it, because we're habituated to it and trained for it, but it is not life. It is not the life that is truly life. And I pray that you would send us your Holy Spirit when we've been holding on to it so long that from muscle memory, we keep doing that. But would you open it up for us, God? Teach us to release it. Open our hands, Lord, to let it go. To let it go. And to believe that you have something else for us. And God, as we, as we open our hands and turn them up, we receive from you. And we pray that you would pour your Holy Spirit into our lives. Sometimes we keep our lives closed to you because that's what we're trained for. That's what our muscle memory teaches us to do. So God, I pray that by your grace, you would even open us up when we would not, we can't do it on our own. And I pray that you would give us new life, that you would fill us with new hope, that you would give us a vision of the life that you intend for us and for our community together, and that you would lead us in the way of Jesus, and that you would help us to experience your new power in our lives, form us for new community, 
Help us to begin living the eternal life now to live in your present future. We pray, Lord, as we live in Jesus' name. Amen.